The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Times together in fellowship, show, show us Christ as we proclaim your word. Show us Christ even through the disasters around the world. You show yourself to those who are crying out for you this very moment. Father, we thank you that we've been able to walk through the Gospel of John and that you are teaching us that you're the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd who calls us by name and we hear his voice and we follow. Thank you, Father. We pray that you might lead our way as a people, as a church, brothers and sisters in Christ, because you are the way. We pray, Lord, that you might teach us your word because you are truth. And we thank you and praise you for making us new creations because you're life. God, continue to do your work through the power of your spirit in this place. We worship as we serve you. And we pray for those affected by the earthquake in Nepal and the surrounding countries. We pray, Lord, that you might give strength to those who are providing disaster relief, that you might protect and care for our missionaries who are serving you in that spot right now, this very moment, God. Lift them up. Protect them. We pray, Lord, that your gospel might be proclaimed. And as people cry out for answers to these problems, that they might not cry out to some false god. They might cry out to the true and living God. And may our people who are on the field, Lord, show them the way. We're thankful for your church. Help us to do our part here on the home front. Help us to hold the ropes for those who are serving. And continue to make us the church you've called us to be. Continue to mold and shape us so that we might when we leave this place, be salt and light in this community and even around the world. Teach us to give generously. Teach us to love generously so that this world might know that we're your disciples. We thank you for a word we have to proclaim. We pray that your word might even pierce our hearts this day. That your truth might be real to us. That you'll bless our pastor's study and you'll open his mouth and speak through him. For our good and for your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 13. I was going to sing the sermon for a minute there. Are you going to play? John chapter 13. This morning we'll give attention uh, to verses 18 through 30. back up and read beginning in verse 16 just uh, so it doesn't seem that we're jumping into the middle of a conversation that we don't understand. Beginning in verse 16 of John chapter 13, listen to what John writes. He says, speaking from Jesus, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. (laughs) 
I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. The word of the Lord. The history of the world has uh, been marked by a number of famous traitors. Probably if you reflected over your just uh, what knowledge you have of, of world history, human history, you could probably throw out the names of some famous traitors, couldn't you? Yes? Give me some. Benedict Arnold. I hate that one because his name, Arnold, is my first name. And I had a French teacher in middle school who called me Benedict Arnold every day. Don't like French to this day. Benedict Arnold, yes, absolutely. This very uh, famous American general who turns to the other side. Benedict Arnold, traitor, turncoat, who else? Say it again. Brutus. I'm sorry. I, I, I could hear it, but I couldn't quite make it out. Brutus, of course. Yes. Uh, turncoat, a traitor. Takes part in the murder of Caesar. Brutus. Of course, we can never forget him. More contemporary names maybe you would know. Aldrich Ames. Are you familiar with that name? Famous intelligence officer in the United States. There's movies made about him. I can't recall the name of the movie off the top of my head, but I bet one of you can. Movie about Aldrich Ames. You don't remember that? It's just recent. It's in my lifetime. Well, praise the Lord. You don't watch Hollywood. Okay. Um, it's not recent anymore. That's true. That's true. That's true. Very true. Hard to accept, but very true. Uh, we think back to Tokyo Rose back during, uh, uh, back during the, the days of war. A voice on the radio spouting propaganda. A turncoat, a traitor. We could go on with a list of other names. The world has always been marked by those who've been traitors. And um, traitors are universally hated because of that's what they are, traitors. They're people who, who are turncoats, people who um, work to gain the trust of people and then turn around and stab them in the back. Nobody likes a traitor. The most famous of all traitors in the world, history of the world has to be, you won't find this on list if you Google famous traitors, but it has to be Judas Iscariot. It's the most famous traitor, the most infamous traitor, the worst traitor of all traitors in human history. You say, well, how do you say that? I say that because every other traitor that you just mentioned was a traitor who turned code on, on other human beings. But Judas is far worse than that. He's a traitor who stabs in the back, not some other human being, but God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. His is not an earthly sort of a treason. It's a cosmic treason. He looks God in human flesh in the face, and he stabs him in the back. Judas Iscariot is the worst of the worst. A vile, dark man who has a vile, dark heart. And his name is remembered because he's the one who, he's the one who betrays the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you right up front, it's not a one ounce of fun to look at the life of Judas. 
Because when we look deeply into his life, we see a man who is literally eaten up with sin. Sin that is so vile and so dark that it has completely, by the end, overtaken this man and driven him to the place in life where he walks out and he ties a rope around his neck and he hangs himself, disgusted with his own vile self. And John brings us to look at this man in chapter 13. We get a good glimpse of him. He's been there all along as we've studied the Gospel of John. He's been there all along with the disciples and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been there sort of kind of hovering in the background. He's not been really in the forefront. We haven't focused on him much. The Gospel writers don't focus much on him. But he was there all along. He was a part of everything that took place. But it's not until now that he comes to the forefront. And he comes to the forefront in order to be exposed. And that's exactly what happens in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. Jesus is going to expose this man. He's going to expose his plot. He's going to expose him for the vile, wretched traitor that he is. And so we're going to look into this. We're going to look at what Judas does. We're going to look at how Jesus exposes um, his, uh, his sin. But we're going to do it with a, with a particular lens that I want you to look through, that I'm going to hopefully lead you through. I want you to, as we track through and as we look at this man, as we look at what unfolds in the, in the narrative that John gives us, I want you to see particularly the absolute destructive power of sin in this man's life. The destructive power of sin. I want you to get a good glimpse at what sin is like, at what sin does. The Bible tells us that there's an enemy of our souls, Satan, and that he's got a goal. It's to steal and to kill and to destroy. And his primary weapon that he uses out of his arsenal to do those things is this thing called sin, temptation, sin. He understands human weakness. And he knows exactly how to, how to tempt us at the very point of our weakness, to draw us in. And he'll lead us along on a path through temptation, sin by sin by sin, until if something doesn't happen, we're utterly destroyed in the end. And Judas Iscariot is a prime example of how this process works and how it plays out. And so we need to see this. We need to see it in Judas. And we need to see it in Judas because he becomes an extreme example that helps us to look at our own selves in the mirror And really identify where the roots of the same kinds of sins that destroyed this man find a home in our hearts. We are not that unlike this man as we would like to think we are. The sins that destroyed ultimately this man root into our hearts. And not only do they root there, but sometimes we know they're there. Sometimes we even excuse them. Other times we even indulge them and coddle them. And I hope this morning as we walk through this narrative and you get a good look, a good glimpse at the destructive power of sin that will drive you to no longer do those things. It will drive you to kill those sins in your life with the help of the Spirit of God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The destructive power of sin in Judas is the poster child for this. Uh, we need to review just a little bit who this man is. Judas is one of the original 12 apostles. He was specifically called by Jesus. Jesus is going to mention this in the text in John chapter 13. Back in Mark chapter 3, um, Mark writes, beginning in verse 14, speaking of Jesus, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Interesting, this man Judas, the poster child for the destructive power of sin, is one whom Jesus specifically and personally called to be part of his inner circle of twelve. And if you understand what Mark was saying there, he called and appointed these twelve so that they might be with him and so that he might send them out to preach and so that he might send them out to have authority to cast out demons. And that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly what Judas did. Judas is one of the twelve. He was present for all the events that the other 11 were present for. 
Everything that Jesus did where the apostles were there, Judas was there. He heard Jesus teach for all those years, three years, something along those lines. For three years, he's been listening to Jesus teach publicly. He's even been uh, privy to the private conversations that Jesus had with only his apostles that the public never heard. He was there for the Sermon on the Mount. He was there for everything that Jesus said. He heard it. He was actively involved in the ministry of the Twelve. Actively part of everything. Part of their casting out demons, part of their healing every disease, part of them casting out unclean spirits. Judas was right there in the mix doing all of those things. Mark tells us that. Matthew tells us that. There is absolutely no indication that anywhere along the way Judas stands out as different from the other eleven. That's why, as we'll see in our text, when the betrayal begins to be uncovered, everyone's shocked. Judas saw all the miracles he participated in several of the miracles. You think of the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. I mean, Judas had to be one who was passing out the loaves and the fishes, who was, who was there, involved in that, seeing the miracle, being a part of the miracle. And there he was, right in the mix of all of that. Storm on the Sea of Galilee when they thought they were going to die. And Jesus comes walking on the water and rescues them. And they find themselves in the boat amazed at who Jesus is. Judas was there. He was in the mix. He saw the miracles. He heard all the teaching. He participated in all that. But what you need to know about him is he was a lost man. In spite of all that, he did not know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He did not. John chapter 6, earlier in the gospel, John has reported for us this. Jesus saying, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then John tells us, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew. He knew all along that Judas was a lost man, that Judas was going to betray him. He knew the hearts of men. He knew who belonged to him and who did not. And Judas did not. A little later in that chapter, a few verses later, Jesus says to the the apostles, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He said that. They heard that. Judas was understood by Christ. He knew him. He understood what his heart condition was. He was a lost man. That's why we get to Acts chapter 1 and verse 25. We're told the place, speaking of Judas, that the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Judas turned aside from the apostleship. He turned aside from the twelve. He turned aside from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he went to his own place. Do you know where his own place was? It was hell. That's where he went. That was Judas's place. The place created for him and for everyone else who betrays the Lord Jesus Christ, who refuses to repent of their sin and entrust their lives to him. So that's where Judas ends. And that's where Judas finds himself at this moment. Every human being has an eternal soul, and the Bible tells us that all of us spend eternity in one of two places, in the presence of the Lord whom we've loved, or in our own place, hell, apart from the presence of the Lord, outer darkness, And people end up there only because they reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as Judas did. And they die that way. And death doesn't determine where we go. Death only sets in stone the choice we've already made when we were alive. And when Judas hanged himself, that choice was set in stone, that he would spend eternity in his place. He was a lost man. But beyond that, he was a man who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. John Piper says this, The most spectacular sin that has ever been committed in the history of the world is the brutal murder of Jesus Christ, the morally perfect, infinitely worthy, divine Son of God. And probably the most despicable act in the process of this murder was the betrayal of Jesus by one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot. I agree with John Piper. One of the most despicable acts... Of any human being ever. The betrayal of Jesus by Judas, his friend. And Judas, Judas ultimately ends by committing suicide. That's all you need to know about Judas at this point. He kills himself. 
As we pick up in John chapter 13, Judas rises to the scene. This man, this man who was there all along, this man who was along or was with the twelve, this man who, who uh, on the surface looked to be like everybody else but was truly a lost man, this one who was going to betray Jesus, is there gathered with Jesus and his disciples sharing a final Passover meal. And this meal that they've gathered to, take, to, to share together and the, the story that, we're, that John's going to unfold for us before takes place really, this is, we're getting to the last hours now. I mean, what, what we're going to read about, what we're going to study this morning takes place literally within 24 hours of Jesus' death. That's how close we are. That's how close we are to the end here. And Judas isn't going to make it to see daylight. By the time daylight rises, Judas is a dead man. So we look at this this morning, and I want you to see in this narrative, I want you to see the destructive nature of sin. I want you to get a good look at what sin is like and what sin does. And I pray that as you get a good look at it, and when you see it, you'll be repulsed by it. And you'll be driven to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be committed more than ever to killing it when it shows up in your life. Let me show you the first characteristic of sin. I want you to see in verses 18 through 20 the blinding nature of sin, the blinding nature. Listen to what John reports for us. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I'm he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, if you've been here the last, last week, you, you, uh, you heard what was going on right before this in great detail. Pastor Frank told us about what had just happened. Just previous to gathering in this room, uh, the apostles, these, the twelve who were with Jesus, had been arguing about who was the greatest, right? They were arguing about who was the greatest. They were arguing about who was going to uh, get to sit on Jesus' right and his left in the eternal kingdom. Who were, who were, gonna, who were the ones that were going to rise to the top out of the group, um, and Jesus knew. He understood what they, were, what they were debating. He understood what human pride is like and the danger of that. And so he intends here, coming to the very end, to teach them a very, very important lesson. And they need to understand what true greatness is like. True greatness is not, according to Jesus, seeing how high you can rise and what kind of position of authority you can take and trying to build yourself up. And Jesus wants to teach them what true humility is like and what true greatness is like. And so he does something really dramatic and something shocking in the middle of this meal. Do you recall what he does? He stands up in the meal and he takes off his outer garment and he puts a towel around him and he takes on the position of a low servant and he gets a basin and he gets a towel and he washes the disciples' feet. They're arguing about who's the greatest and Jesus takes on the identity of the lowest to show them what greatness really looks like. It doesn't look like arguing about who's the best. It looks like taking up a, a towel and a basin and washing someone's feet. That's what greatness looks like. It looks like humility. And Jesus has just done something amazing. He has just done this, this remarkable lesson in selflessness, denying self for the sake of others. God in human flesh becomes a servant. He lowers himself and he washes stinky, nasty feet. And it was a powerful illustration. And it was meant to shock them, to shock them out of their pride, their sinful attitudes. And it could not be a more stark contrast that John gives us than, gives, than giving us Jesus humbling himself and washing dirty feet and then right on the heels of that introducing us to Judas. I mean, the contrast couldn't be greater, could it? You have the God of the universe, the one who is truly great, showing what greatness is about by, by modeling absolute, pure selflessness, denying himself for the sake of others. And then we're introduced to Judas, the height of selfishness, the absolute height of selfishness, who's going to sell out the Lord Jesus Christ for his own greedy gain. The contrast could not be more stark. Now, we already know from John's gospel that Judas is already furious with Jesus. Do you know why? Do you recall why? It's been a couple chapters. It's been a few weeks. But I, I, I have confidence in you, right? You were getting ready to say John chapter 6, weren't you? The incident with the perfume. Do you remember? The nard. 
Mary anointing Jesus uh, with this expensive ointment, uh, this extravagant uh, dis- dis- uh, demonstration of pure love and devotion to Jesus. And in the, mix of, in the midst of all this, this beautiful display of devotion, Judas speaks up, right? Do you remember that? And he says, well, this is, just, this is ridiculous. This is my paraphrase. It's ridiculous. That money could have, that, that, that nard could have been sold. And we could have gotten a bunch of money for it and we could have given it to the poor. And do you remember how Jesus responds to him? He says, Judas, shut up. No, that's not exactly the way, but that's what he meant. Judas, leave her alone. That's what he says. You leave her alone. You leave Mary alone. What she's done is good. And Judas, Judas is rebuked publicly. He's rebuked. And Matthew reports to us this in Matthew's account of that event. In Matthew 26, verse 14, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the... It's then, it's right after this, that he went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Jesus rebukes Judas publicly, and Judas is a livid. It's livid. He's livid. It's already been brewing in his heart already. We'll see that. But at that point, he's livid. And in his fury and his rage, he goes out and he goes to the chief priests. And it's from that moment, Matthew tells us, that he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Jesus, He was already a thief. He was already a vile man. But after that event, it was a trigger point for Judas. And he's so consumed with his own selfishness that at this point, he only cares about himself. He doesn't care about Jesus. He doesn't care about the other 12. He cares about Judas. And we couldn't see a more stark contrast. Utter selflessness washing the feet of the height of selfishness. And that's the picture that we have here at this dinner. But Judas is completely blind to the truth that Jesus is teaching, isn't he? Jesus is teaching them about humility. He's teaching them about greatness. He's modeling it for them. But, and I suspect that the others got it. But Judas doesn't get it. He's completely blind to it. Can you imagine what's going on in Judas's mind as this is playing out? As Jesus kneels down and washes his feet? Is Judas broken by that? Is he moved by this remarkable act of Jesus? No, he's not. Does he even understand what Jesus is doing or saying? No. He's blind to it. He's completely and utterly blind. His heart is hardened. His mind is blind to the reality of Jesus. He is set and determined in his chosen course of action. And and he just cannot see the reality of what's in front of him. But Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus understands. Time is short. And he knows that his hours are limited now. And he's got some business to take care of with those who really belong to him. And so he chooses to expose Judas. In this meeting, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. That's right on the heels of this washing incident. Look, he said, you'll be blessed if you do what I just modeled for you. You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed if you do what I've showed you. You'll you'll be blessed if you humble yourself. You'll be blessed and you'll be great if you serve others. But not all of you. Not all of you will. Now, back in verse 10, Pastor Frank pointed this out. He's already said to the group, you're all clean, but what? Not all of you. Not all of you are clean. That's right on the heels of Peter saying, well, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. If you're going to wash my feet, you're going to wash all of me. And Jesus says, whoa, Peter, you don't, I don't need to wash all of you. You're already clean. Clean representing saved. You already belong to me. You've already been washed with regeneration, so to speak. You're clean, but not all of you. If you do this, you'll be blessed, but not all of you. Because Jesus knows there's one who won't, and there's one who's not. He says, I know whom I've chosen. And when he says, I know whom I've chosen, he's not talking about the salvation. He's talking about to be a part of the team here, to be part of the twelve. He says, I know who you are. You're not all clean. I know you. I chose you. You're not all going to be blessed. I know you. I chose you. He chose them to be his disciples. He chose them to be entrusted with the responsibility to launch his church, to fulfill the Great Commission after his death and crucifixion and resurrection. And he knows exactly which ones will do that and which one will not. He knows. And you say, well, why in the world would Jesus intentionally choose a man to be in his inner circle who he knows will betray him, who he knows is lost, 
who he knows is going to stab him in the back. Well, he tells us. He says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Why did Jesus choose Judas? Because Judas was going to fulfill prophecy. Judas had a role in the eternal plan of God. This prophecy is from uh, Psalm 41, by the way. You can turn there or you can look at the screen. Psalm 41, verse 9, a psalm of David. David writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David understood what it was like to be betrayed. He understood what it was like to be stabbed in the back. David understood that because it had happened to him. You may recall, if you know much about the Old Testament or the life and ministry, life and um, ruling of David, that David had a son who ultimately rebelled against him. Do you remember the man Absalom, the rebellious son who rebels against his father and literally runs his dad out of town and takes over his kingdom, so to speak, takes over his wives, puts a tent on the roof and starts sleeping with all of his wives in full view for everybody to see. Great son, right? Well, in the midst of that rebellion by David's son, David's one of his dearest friends, one of his closest advisors, a man by the name of Ahithophel, stabs him in the back. Ahithophel, one of his closest advisors, turns coat, turns tail, and he, and he sides with Absalom, this rebellious son, and, and becomes an advisor to Absalom. And David is brokenhearted. That his friend, that this one who he has loved dearly, who's been close to him, has betrayed him. And so Psalm 41, verse 9, we believe that's who David is speaking of when he says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he's lifted his heel. Psalm 55, David is still talking about this. He says, verse 12, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from it. But it's you, a man. My equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Can you hear just the grief pouring out of David's mouth as he writes this? I mean, if it was a stranger, he says, I could understand it. But you, you're my friend. We ate together. We walked together. I trusted you. Verse 20 of Psalm 55. My companion stretched out his hand against his friend. He violated his covenant. His, his speech was as smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Ahithophel, David's friend who stabbed him in the back. But, it, but this psalm isn't just about David and Ahithophel. You see, in many cases in the Old Testament, David is set up as a type or a picture of the Messiah who would to come, who, who was to come. And Jesus is telling us here that Ahithophel is also a type. He's also a symbol of one who's going to come later. And who is that? It's Judas Iscariot. Ahithophel, a type of Judas. He's a picture of one who's going to come much later, who's going to betray the Messiah. And Judas is going to fulfill this prophecy, this story about this man, this dear friend of David who stabs him in the back, is a picture of what Judas is going to ultimately do to Jesus Christ. And we see remarkable similarities between the two. Both of them are close friends who betray, right? Ahithophel and Judas. Both of them ate bread with the one whom they were going to betray, both of them, on the surface, looked like a close friend and a dear ally, but in their hearts, something different was going on altogether. Another similarity that both of them at the end hang themselves. I don't think that's something we should overlook. Ahithophel, just a short story, sides with Absalom, and he becomes an advisor to Absalom. But when he realizes that his advice isn't being heeded, he goes back. In Second Samuel, we find this story. He goes back to his home. He sets his house in order, and he goes out, and he hangs himself. And that's how Ahithophel dies. Listen, every single part of the life and death and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, every single part of it was part of God's eternal plan. Even the betrayal of Judas. There's not one thing that takes place in the life and ministry of Jesus that's a surprise or that's a shock that isn't part of God's eternal providential plan. 
And this is going to be so critical for the disciples to understand. They need to know this. They need to understand that what Judas is doing, they need to know that Judas is doing this, but it is not a shock to God. It is not a shock to Jesus. It's, in fact, a very real part of the plan all along. Why is it important for them to know that? Can you think of a reason why that would be important? Well, Jesus tells us, thankfully, because you didn't know, right? Okay. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe in me. I'm telling you this now because when it all takes place, you need to know that when it all takes place, you need to be able to look back and understand that this was all part of the plan. If they didn't understand that, what would likely be the case? If they didn't understand that Judas' betrayal was a part of the plan, if they didn't understand that Jesus knew this all along, if they didn't understand that this was an important part of God's providential plan, what do you think the effect of that would have been on the disciples trying to move forward after the crucifixion? They would have been thrown into a tizzy. They would have, been, they would have had to, to reevaluate their whole relationship with Jesus. Well, we thought he was God, but if he's God, how could, he, how could this happen? How could he be betrayed by someone? How could Judas infiltrate the crowd without him knowing? How could Judas pull this off? How could Judas end up causing him to be killed? How could this happen if he's God? They'd be reevaluating all that. And so Jesus says, I'm exposing this to you now so that when it all happens, you'll be able to look back. You'll remember this conversation and you'll understand and you'll know that this was all part of the plan. That I wasn't caught by surprise. That I knew exactly what was going on all along. And the only way I could have known is how. I'm God. I'm God. And I know the hearts of men. This conversation is going to be so valuable to these men after the crucifixion. Because right now when Jesus says it, they don't have a clue what he's talking about. They don't have a clue. But after it all plays out, and it's all said and done, and Jesus is in the grave, and Jesus is then resurrected, they look back on that, and all of a sudden it makes sense. Oh, that's what was going on. And Jesus knew all along. He must have been God. Jesus said, I'm telling you this so that when, when it all connects, when all the dots connect, you'll know that I'm he. You'll know that I am who I said I am. And that begs the question then, doesn't it? If all this was prophesied and if all this was part of a providential plan of God, how can Judas be held responsible for it? Do you wonder that? Here's the answer. At no point along the way did Judas do anything other than exactly what he wanted to do. That at one and the same time, this was part of God's providential plan, but at the same time, Judas was all along making choices and doing exactly what Judas wanted to do. He was not a robot. Nobody was controlling him like a video game. Judas was making choices every day, and he was making choices based on what he wanted to do at any given moment. Judas was a vile man. He was a sinful man, and he was a greedy, selfish man. And at every point along the way, he was playing out God's eternal plan, but at every point along the way, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do, too. Calvin said it this way, Judas may not be excused on the ground that what befell him was prophesied, since he fell away not through compulsion of the prophecy, but through the wickedness of his own heart. John MacArthur says it this way, God didn't make Judas betray Jesus, but God planned what Judas would do into the redemptive plan. Just like God uses godless men throughout the Old Testament to accomplish his purpose, so he uses a godless Judas to bring about a godly end. That's how God works. He works through men. Whether those men are regenerate or unregenerate really doesn't matter. God works his plan. Judas, however, is completely blind to his sin. He's completely blinded by his sin. He's in so deep, his mind is so clouded, his senses are so dulled to reality and truth, he has no concept of what he's doing, really. And you know what? That's one of the effects of sin. One of the effects of sin, one of the One of the horrible effects of sin in the life of a human being is it blinds us to spiritual reality. It blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to what's really happening right in front of us. We can't see it. We can't understand it. We can't make sense of it. It corrupts our mind. It confuses our senses. It convinces us we're right when we're absolutely dead wrong. That's why the Bible consistently refers to sin as darkness. Have you noticed that? Sin is constantly referred to as darkness. The darkness of sin. The darkness. Because what does darkness do? It blinds us to what's around us. It confuses our sensibilities. We don't know which way is up and down, right and wrong. 
And that's what sin does when it, when it finds its way into a human heart. It blinds us to spiritual truth and to spiritual reality. And you know what? You may not be Judas here, a lost person. You may be a Christian. But I'll tell you this. If you harbor sin in your life and you coddle it in your life, it'll have that blinding effect on you too. All of a sudden, your spiritual sensibility will be dulled. All of a sudden, you'll open up God's word and it will make no sense. It'll be words on a page, but it, it finds no place in your heart because you're blind to it. Sin has a blinding effect on our hearts. In First John, John chapter 2, John writes, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever claims to be in the light but harbors the sin of hatred is still what? He's in the dark. You're still dark. You're still blind. You're claiming one thing, but you're doing something else, and you have no clue what reality is. And in him there's a, there's a, excuse me, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and he walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness is what? It's blinded him. And that's what sin does. It blinds us. We can fancy ourselves to be holy, and we can really believe that about ourselves, but we're wrong, and our sin has blinded us. We believed a lie. In Ephesians chapter 14, Paul writes of Gentiles, speaking of lost people, and he says, Now I say this in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In what? The futility of their minds. How do lost people walk? They walk in sin, and that sin does what? It causes a futility in the mind. They're darkened in their understanding, he says. That's what sin does. It clouds the mind to spiritual reality. It clouds the mind to spiritual truth. And we can't understand what's right. We can't see the Lord. We can't understand His Word. We can't figure out what is right and wrong. And we often believe all kinds of things about ourselves and the world around us that are patently untrue. That's one of the effects of sin in our life. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes in verse 22, he says, you're to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and you're to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. When we put off our sin, a renewal of our minds takes place. When we put off our sin and embrace righteousness, all of a sudden our spiritual sensibility comes back. Listen. Let me say this to you directly. If you find yourself opening your Bible and it makes no sense and you get nothing out of it, you find yourself coming to places like this where the Word of God is being taught and being preached and it just, it just goes in one ear and out the other and it does, you don't understand it. It doesn't, it doesn't grasp you. It doesn't have any effect on your life. You know what? I want to tell you you need to take a look, good, long look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself this simple question. Am I harboring sin in my life? Am I coddling sin in my life? Am I indulging in sinful behaviors and patterns in my life? Is that what's blinding me to spiritual truth and spiritual reality? Because sin has a blinding effect. It has a blinding effect. Judas was completely blind to who Jesus really was and to what Jesus was really doing. He had no concept of it because his sin had blinded him to spiritual reality. All he saw was himself and what he wanted. And everything in his thinking is upside down and backwards. That's what sin does. But it doesn't just blind us. It also is a betrayal. That's the second thing I want you to see about the nature of sin. It's a betrayal. Sin at heart is betrayal. In verse 21, Jesus says, or, yeah, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, John says, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Sin at its heart is a betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Judas, in a very real sense, is going to physically betray him. He's going to sell him out for money. But that's just the physical side of it. Judas has already betrayed him in his heart. He's already rebelled against him. Back to Psalm 41. You, you could sense from David's words how badly betrayal stings, can't you? And I suspect that some of you who are in this place don't even have to reflect on David's words to know what betrayal feels like, right? I mean, there, are, there, are there deeper? I'm sure there are, but there are a few. Deeper kinds of grief and pain and hurt than when someone that's dear and close to you, somebody that you love and somebody that you trust, betrays you and stabs you in the back. That is a pain and that is a grief that is very, very difficult to deal with and to manage. Maybe your husband or a wife 
who's had your spouse betray you. You understand that. You know what betrayal is like. You know the deep kind of grief and pain that comes along with this. Maybe, you, maybe you're uh, a business person who's had a partner, somebody that you trusted, somebody who you shared a bank account with that betrayed you and stabbed you in the back. And you understand what betrayal is like, and you know how that feels and how it stings. Or maybe you just had a close friend, somebody that you've loved, somebody that you walked with for an awful lot of years that wounded you, that hurt you, betrayed you. A a company, a boss that you've been loyal to for many years betrays you. You know what that's like? I suspect in some way, shape, or form, most of us in the room can feel that and can sense that. And even as I talk about it, those old emotions, just you begin to feel them even now. Because betrayal hurts. It's a deep, deep kind of pain. And it hurts deep. Judas' plan is the ultimate betrayal because it's the betrayal of God himself. It's one thing to betray another person. It's another thing altogether to betray God in person. After everything that he's seen Jesus do, after everything he's heard from Jesus, he's seen nothing but absolute sheer perfection from Jesus. That's all he's seen, and that's all he's heard from this man. And yet his sin is so dark, and he's so blind to reality, he's so obsessed with himself. To him, to Judas, perfection looks like worthlessness. Because it doesn't feed his greed. And you know, I think this had to be one of the deepest hurts that Jesus experienced along the path here at the end. This betrayal of Judas. Don't think for, just, don't, don't think for a second just because he knew it was going to happen in some sense that it didn't hurt. It hurt. Jesus had been investing in this man like he had everyone else. He'd been pleading with him just like he had pleaded with everyone else. He had been offering his love and his kindness. He had washed his feet. He had done everything he could to draw Judas to repentance. And Judas betrays him. Michael Card, Christian artist that I like, maybe that also dates me, Pastor Frank, wrote a song called Why. And in that song is two lines. He says this, only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough. To ever cause so much pain. And he's right. And Judas, I believe, was truly to Jesus a friend. A friend who stabs him in the back. How do you know it was painful for Jesus? Because John tells us after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. That word troubled in spirit is the same word that we saw when Jesus showed up at Lazarus' tomb when he's in the grave. And, the, and the, the, everybody's mourning and weeping. And it tells us that Jesus was deeply moved and he was troubled in his spirit. The word means agitated, stirred up. He was broken hearted. Just in thinking of what Jesus was going to do, I mean, what Judas was going to do, it troubled him. It broke his heart. You know, Judas wasn't the only disciple to betray Jesus, right? You realize that. Peter betrays him later, right? Peter, the leader of the group, so to speak. I mean, when this all goes down, Peter denies three times what? I never even knew the guy. That's betrayal of a different sort. Peter's going to betray Jesus, too. He's going to know what that sin is like. And he's later going to be broken over his betrayal. And, of course, Jesus is going to come alongside and he's going to restore Peter because Peter's heart wasn't like Judas' heart. It was different. But at heart, sin is a betrayal. Judas physically betrays Jesus, but he's already betrayed him in his heart by his sin, by his greed, by his thievery, by his lust. He is betraying Jesus over and over and over again. And you know what? In a sense, every single sin that you and I commit is also a betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is. And in a sense it is, because the Lord Jesus Christ has laid down his life to set you and to set me free from the domination and the, and the enslavement of sin. That's part of what he gave his life for, so that you and I could be freed from the enslaving power of sin, so that we could have the power and the ability to resist and to fight it and to kill it and to, and to, to be sanctified. And every time you and I indulge sin in our lives, it's a betrayal of what Christ has done for us. He died to redeem us and to sanctify us and to make us into his image. And every time you and I willfully indulge and coddle sin in our life, we're betraying that purpose. 
Every time we choose to sin, we stab him in the back and we undercut his work in our life. In a very real sense, when you and I choose willfully to sin, it's just like saying, I don't know him. Because that's what sin is. It's a betrayal. It's a betrayal. And that betrayal of Judas, as violent as it is, it finds roots in our hearts sometimes. It finds roots in my heart. When I lie, I betray Jesus Christ. When I indulge lusts in my life, I betray the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not that unlike Judas. When I gossip, I betray the Lord Jesus Christ. When I love the world more than I love Christ, when I indulge in materialism and that becomes the, uh, the characteristic of my life, I might as well say to the world, I don't know Jesus Christ because I'm betraying him. That's what sin does. It blinds the eyes and at its heart it's a betrayal. Let me show you a third thing. Our time is short, so I'll give this to you quickly. Just introduce it. I want you to see the covert nature of sin. The covert nature. Sin blinds. Sin is betrayal. And sin hides. That's another way of saying it. Let me just read the text to you, verses 22 through 25. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And then skipping down to verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. That is what you must do, do quickly. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should go give something to the poor. When this all begins to go down, and Jesus begins to expound on this issue that somebody's going to betray him, the disciples absolutely have no clue what he's talking about. And they have absolutely no idea who he's talking about. I mean, you just get the picture that they're gathered around this table, and Jesus says this stuff. And, and, and John tells us, what are they doing? They're looking around at each other. They're looking around. They're looking at the people on the right and on the left. Is it that guy? Is it that guy? I don't know. Maybe it's him. They have no idea who it is. They have no idea who it is. And Peter, usually the first one to, to, to act, does act. Well, what does he do? Well, Peter's apparently at the other side of the table, or the other end of the table. So he motions somehow, somehow to whom? To John, who happens to be sitting where? Okay, right next to Jesus, on Jesus' right, as Pastor Frank showed us last week, reclining, uh, I won't do that, but reclining on their elbow. And he's right at Jesus' right, so he can just lean back and ask Jesus. So Peter doesn't want to yell it out across the table. For once, Peter controls his impulse. That's nice. But he motions to John. John, you know, ask him, ask him, find out who it is. So that's exactly what John ultimately does. But the point here is this. Nobody has any idea it's Judas. No one. No one suspects him. There's nothing about Judas that made people wonder about him. There's nothing about him that made him stand out as a candidate for the betrayer here to everyone else. This man's heart was as dark and vile as a human heart can be, and nobody in the, in the, in the group of the apostles had any clue. He had completely hidden it from everyone. Completely and utterly and marvelously hidden it from everyone. He had hidden it. Nobody, he, on the surface, he looked no different than Peter or John or James or anyone else. There was nothing in this man's external life that gave anyone a clue that he was the one that Jesus was talking about. In fact, we can infer from where he's sitting, he's sitting on Jesus' left, which incidentally was a place of honor, that maybe he was the last one they would have expected. And yet he's a devil. He's a devil, according to Jesus. That's what sin does. It hides and it thrives in the darkness. It, it thrives and it grows when it's unseen by anyone else. When the only one that knows about it is the one who's harboring it. And so Judas is able to go every day to the work of the apostles as a devil and no one knows it. And that sin is growing inside of him in the darkness, hidden from anyone else's view. And it's growing and it's growing. And what starts out as petty selfishness, what starts out as petty greed, ends up as a murderous plot to have Jesus killed. And all of that happens in the dark. 
and nobody, nobody knows. Even when Judas gets up from the table and he walks out, they still don't even suspect it. They still don't even suspect it's Judas. They have no idea. John MacArthur says Judas was the artful hypocrite, masterful, aided and abetted by the master of all deception, the one who disguises himself as an angel of light, Satan himself. You know, that's what sin does. It hides in the recesses of the human heart. It stays there covertly so nobody else can see it. And when it's kept there, it grows and it grows and it grows until it dominates the life in which it grows. That's the covert nature of sin. That's the hidden nature of sin. There's an article from just a couple years ago on ABC News website that starts like this. As members of his congregation took their seats in the sanctuary on Sunday, Pastor Michael Clark stood in the back and leaned against the wall. He put his clasped hands to his face, closed his eyes, and took a quiet moment. Within minutes, he was before the congregation of Christ Lutheran Church, beginning to guide them through what he says will be a long journey of healing. At the 815 service was the first time that he had spoken to his congregation since the church's board president was arrested last Friday by the Wichita authorities who allege he is the BTK killer, the worst serial murderer in Kansas history. And this article goes on to describe this man, his name, Dennis Rader. And in the article, they're, they're, they're interviewing people in this church and asking about this man. And the article tells us things like this. Just a week ago, Raider was involved in the 1045 a.m. service. He was an usher who helped collect the offering. Now he's suspected of 10 homicides that occurred from 1974 to 1991. You read a little further in the article, and they interview one of his uh, church mates, a man by the name of Paul Carlstedt. I can't believe what they're saying is the Dennis Rader I've known for 30 years. I replaced him as the board president. He was a, quote, a very good person. In fact, just days before his arrest, Rader had brought spaghetti sauce and salad to a church supper. They say, that is the folks in the church, that Rader could be called on to mow a member's lawn or help with an event. He appeared to be a great husband. In fact, when church member Bob Smizer moved out of state a few years ago, Rader checked in on his mother for him on a regular basis. Quote, he was just a really caring person, somebody said. How is that? How is that? That someone can walk into a church for for years, 30 years, on a regular basis, do what you're doing here. This morning, you can collect an offering. Nobody's going to volunteer to do the offering anymore, Pastor Frank. Everybody's going to be suspicious of them. Or they'll have buckets on the wall or something. How is it that somebody can go to church for 30 years? How is it that somebody can on the outside look like a, a really good man, a caring person? Bring food to church suppers. Serve as president of the church board. Mow lawns for people who couldn't mow their lawn. How is it that somebody like that could be known intimately well by by people for three decades? And on the inside, the man's a monster. Who is in a brutal and horrible way that I can't even describe to you murdering people. How is that possible? It's possible because that's what sin does. It's covert. It roots back to the father of all lies, who is a master of disguise. And it grows in the secret recesses of the heart that nobody else knows about. And so a man like Dennis Rader can go about religious things for three decades. And on the outside look just like everybody else, maybe even look better than everybody else. And on the inside, he's a devil. He's a devil. That's what sin does. It grows in the darkness, and it hates to be exposed. And the longer it hides in the darkness, the bigger it grows, and the more it consumes, and the more it destroys the life of the person that coddles it. I tell you that to tell you this. Sin is not something to be played with. 
It's not something to be toyed with. And just because you go around church and people look at you and think you're a good person and think you're a good wife or a good husband or because you collect the offering or serve in the nursery, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean anything in regards to this. Sin can still root in your heart just the same. And it's not something to be toyed with or to be played with or to coddle. It's something that will destroy you. Destroy you. And perhaps other people through you. That's why James says this in chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. You know what you need to do with the sin in your life? You need to repent of it before the Lord. And you need to find somebody that you love and somebody that you trust. Somebody that won't judge you. Somebody that won't gossip about your sin. Somebody that you can sit down with and say, Brother, sister, let me tell you. Let me tell you what's going on in my heart. I'm struggling and I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for me. I need to get this sin that's growing in my heart and I need to get it out in the open. I need to get it out of the dark so that it will stop growing. And I need somebody to come alongside me and to help me, to pray for me. To hold me accountable. To ask me the hard questions about my life so that this thing won't grow in the dark and destroy me. And perhaps a lot of other people too. You see, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be a vile destroyer of other people's lives. Judas didn't wake up one day and say, hey, you know, I think I'll go out and betray Jesus today. No, he started as a petty thief and he hid that in in the recesses of his heart and it grew and grew and grew from thievery to lust right on up to murder. I suspect Dennis Rader didn't wake up one day and said, let me go murder people in horrible ways. But it began with some simple sins that grew in the dark. And as long as they stay in the dark, they grow. Let me ask you this. Who do you have in your life that you can sit down with and talk about your sin to? Who do you have in your life that you can trust, that you can say, listen, I'm struggling and I need you to pray for me? You know, on the heels of that, James says the prayer, the faithful prayer of a righteous person availeth much. We take that out of the context and apply it to all kinds of things, but James is applying it to personal sin that we're exposing. I tell you my sin, and as my fellow brother and sister in Christ who loves me and cares about the work of the Lord in me, you pray for me, and that prayer helps. It makes a difference. Somehow through that transaction of getting it out in the open and you praying for me, God helps heal that thing in my life and uses it to free me of it. We need that in our life. And we need to be that for somebody else. That's why gossip is such a vile sin in a church. Can I just say it that way? That's why gossip is such a vile sin in a church. Because when people gossip in a church, nobody feels comfortable talking about their sin to anybody because they know they're going to go squeal to somebody else and embarrass them about it. And it creates a culture where people can't share their sin with one another. And they can't ask somebody to pray for them because they're afraid. So even something as simple as gossip is just as vile. Well, I'm sorry for going way long. But I want you to see what sin looks like. I want you to be repulsed by it. I want you to hate it when it shows up in your life. I want you to see it for the dangerous enemy that it is to your soul. It will blind you. It will cause you to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you allow it to, it will hide in the dark recesses of your soul. And it will grow and it will grow and it will grow. And the effects of that will be devastating on your spiritual life and perhaps on every aspect of your life. I want to ask you if you'd close your eyes and bow your head with me for a moment. It's time for us to be serious this morning. It's time for us to be serious about where we stand with the Lord. It's time for us to take a really long, hard, close look at our own hearts. And ask, and ask the question, how, how much like Judas am I really? Is there sin in my life that's being coddled, that's being... Indulged, that's being excused and explained away like it's no big deal, like it's not hurting anyone? Am I feeling the blinding effects of sin when I open my Bible? Is it hard to read and understand? I find it hard to keep my attention when the Word of God's being taught. Do I have secrets that I'm keeping secrets? That aren't going away. I want to plead with you and beg you this morning. Deal with the sin in your heart. 
It is a vile enemy that will kill you and destroy you if it can. It is not a, it is not a friend to be played with and toyed with. Look at Judas and look at yourself. And if there's something going on in your life right now, I plead with you, repent before the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from that vile enemy and run to Jesus. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. But you've got to run to Him. Lord Jesus, far too often in our lives, we think sin's no big deal. We excuse it. We explain it away. We act like it's nothing to indulge our lusts, to go around telling lies, to gossip, to harbor greed and hatred, to hold grudges, to do all sorts of things that we know are betrayals of your trust in our lives. And there's an enemy of our souls who gives us a thousand reasons to explain that away, like it's no big deal and everybody does it and who cares? Nobody knows. But I pray this morning you'd open our eyes. I pray that you'd help us to see reality. Don't let us be blinded this morning. Help us this morning to be repulsed by sin and particularly by our sin. And may it drive us to you, Lord Jesus. May it drive us to you. Lord, we pray that you'd help us by your spirit for your sake. Amen.